good to be with you. And Karsten, thanks for uh, reading the scripture to us. And uh, and it looks like our uh, voice Bible college students and, and maybe some of our IUS and other college students are, are kind of rolling back in. It's good to have you guys and, and filling in the spot. We kept it free for you while you were gone. And it is a pleasure to have you and, and, and get to worship alongside you. And the rest of you here, it's a good to be back in the pulpit after a couple of weeks out. I'm always thankful uh, for the Lord and, and uh, thankful for Chris and Brian who opened up God's Word for us. And, uh, and now I'm looking forward for us to get back into Matthew, uh, and particularly Matthew 18. Now, it would be of, of I guess... Uh, <clears throat> No secret to anybody that the, over the last uh, nine months or so, uh, it has been challenging times, needless to say, right? Uh, we've been afflicted. We've been burdened. Uh, and in particular, I'm talking about uh, just the COVID. It is like this fog or mist, this heavy blanket that just kind of lays over all of us. And, and so really, none of us have are been immune from its touch uh, Certainly more have, have been afflicted than others. Some of you have lost loved ones, haven't you? Some of you have lost jobs because of this. It has introduced new anxieties in your life, things that you've never worried about, you're now worrying about. And it's certainly been an inconvenience to everyone, right? There's new inconveniences. Everything, as, as I like to say, is just harder. Every decision, every, everything that has to be done, oh, just getting out of the car and walking to the store, oh yeah, I got to put on that mask. It's difficult. And as a result, whatever tensions already existed in the world, I think have just been heightened just a little bit, right? I mean, we can literally look at the world and everyone's on edge, right? Everyone just seems like they're about to explode. Everything makes us mad. I don't think the church has been immune to this either. We're part of this world. We aren't immune from these pressures. Now, I've, I've not been around long. I've, I've been 37 years old, going 38. It's uh, not many years, and even less so as a Christian. But as I, I venture to guess, just through my own observations and even uh, listening to other uh, more seasoned saints, as I like to call them, there seems to be even more division among the people of God than we can ever remember. There's things just pulling and tugging at us from every angle, and so those existing things have just been complicated even by this COVID season. And now certainly it would be Satan's desire, right? Satan's desire to use these Times of difficulty. In fact, that's always his desire to ratchet up persecution, times of, of trouble <clears throat> to destroy. He, he's the father of lies. He's a thief. He breaks in to steal, kill, and destroy. And it would be his will that these difficult times would destroy the church. Well, we know, as we've already seen through Matthew 16, that ultimately he cannot prevail in this endeavor, can he? Christ will build his church, and the, the gates of hell, the, the powers of death, will not prevail against it. However, 
even with that promise that God's plans, God's purposes in the church, big C church as we call it, will not fail. It is, however, possible for you to fail. It is possible for this church to fail, to fall, for these things to prevail among us. You just have to go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and Jesus is, is visiting seven different churches, and he's walking in their midst, and he has, for many of them, very positive things to say, but he also has some warnings for them that their lampstand might be removed. That he'd no longer be in their midst. And he'd hand them over to their sins. It's possible, brothers and sisters, for you to shipwreck your faith, the scripture says. It's possible for this to happen if you aren't aware or on guard against Satan's evil schemes and the power of sin in your life. For this reason, brothers and sisters, we must fight against anything that would divide us. Any sin that would wreak havoc in our lives or anything that would take you away from the church. And this is a real threat for us. It's a threat because I believe this season of life has, has revealed in some sense of, uh, if you want to stretch it out, just evangelicalism, if you want to call that broad term, it's, it's squeezed us and, and like the tube of toothpaste, what's in you comes out right? And, and frankly, hasn't been very pretty, has it? And we would be remiss to think if, for some sense, that, that what we might be seeing on the great schemes wouldn't affect us. The season of life has revealed, I think, for, for many people, what they actually believe about the church and what their real commitment to it is. And and if you're watching online and you're, you're, you're some of our uh, uh, maybe vulnerable people, please don't hear me reading into you, okay? But as we look into the, the lives of the church and you're seeing maybe people's response during all these times of difficulty and, and trouble, there's questions that begin to arise and, and things that we have to assess. Is the church merely an optional social club for you? Or is it the assembly of the saints of the living God? Is it something you merely watch? Or is it a community you belong to? Is it a group of people who happen to associate around events? Or do you view this group of people as a family that you would fight for, that you would defend, that you would carry burdens with? Are your priorities, your work, your kids' schooling and activities, and your personal time, or, or is the Lord's Day a priority? You might, have you found time to do all these other things out in the world, but COVID keeps you from church? See, these pressures the Lord uses actually to reveal who we really are. And as the challenges of the day are always seeking to pull us away from God's people, trying to pull us away from his church, trying to pull us away from his word, it makes me, uh, or it brings to mind what Jesus said 
as Satan was tempting and afflicting him and, and seeking to pull him away from God's will, which was ultimately the cross, Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that what we do here on Sunday as we expound the word, as we read the word, as we sing the word, as we admonish one another in the word is essential to your soul? Or are all those other things the essential things? Our lives are sustained by God's word. And the church is the place. This is what I want you to hear. The church is the place where God's word, what is it? It's proclaimed. It's rightly interpreted for you. It's vetted to you. It's pressed into your heart. And a church where the word of God is central is a church where, guess what? You're going to be reproved. You're going to be corrected. And you're going to be trained in righteousness. That's something that none of us can do on our own. You can't do a Bible study and get all that. Because guess what? You become your own authority. The church is a place where I humble myself under what's going on. It's a monologue, right? There's no dialogue back and forth. You sit and you listen and it is pressed into your life and, and you're confronted. And, and the word tells us that this is for your souls preserve you. In other words, the church is where you cannot hide, right? If you're all in, you can't hide, right? You can't hide from your sin, which wages war against your soul. Eventually, it comes out, right? And your sin, it, it, it's confronted every Sunday. It's confronted in the church's worship, right? As we pray, we confess sins, we sing songs, we assume things, we listen to the sermon and the Spirit presses it in our hearts, brings conviction upon us. But it's also confronted through the community, right? It's easy if you're just viewing online because no one says, hey, I think that word's for you. You can always dismiss it. You're never challenged to deal with your own sin in the life of another person. You're never confronted in that way. You're never held accountable. You're never encouraged. You're never admonished. You can keep a safe distance. But the church, brothers and sisters, is God's vehicle of grace in your life. It's his means to keep you. It's his means to preserve you. It's his means to save you until the end. The church, in other words, you could think of it like this, analogously, is like the ark. <laughs> the floods are coming. The storm is coming. And many people say, yeah, yeah, I'll get there. And they'll eat, drink, and be married, say peace, peace, when there is no peace, and they do not know that that day will come upon them like a thief in the night. And they'll be outside the doors of the ark. The church is the ark which protects you from the flood. It's the rock which keeps you safe during the storm. Why? Because Jesus Christ is its chief cornerstone. 
right? It's the foundation, it's the house that Jesus has built, and he is its foundation. And it is by which we come into it and we come safely into his arms and he holds us fast. So this is why, now we come to Matthew 18, that Jesus addresses us. And he addresses specifically the dangers of sin and falling away from what? The covenant community. All the way since chapter 16, he's talked about building the church, and he's begun to, to, to talk about how do we relate as the church? Why is this so important? And what I want you to see is this church, the church, is God's means to preserve your soul from the sin that lies within. And so Jesus addresses that. And where we left off a couple of weeks ago in verses 1 through 14 kind of concluded with Jesus talking about verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Who are the little ones? That's you and me. We're like little ones. We're like little children who believe in Christ. He says, don't despise one of them. Why would we ever want to do that? And he's talking about if they fall into sin. They begin to fall away. They, 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 they offend you in some way. And he likens it to a sheep who's wandered away. And he says, wouldn't a, a good uh, shepherd leave the 99 and go after them? And he says, yes. And so he reminds us in verse 14. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Here's the deal about the church. You're not meant to get away. <laughs> right? There's accountability. Why? Because your souls are dependent upon it. Because if you get away, you perish. You'll perish out there. What's Jesus talking about, really? He's talking about how we then seek after one another, hold each other accountable, even restore a brother and sister who has fallen into sin. That's what he's getting into as we come into our text this morning. And what I want you to see is that it is our responsibility as the church to restore those who fall into any transgression and to forgive them of the wrong they do to us, whether that's individually or corporately. Because really, when one falls into sin amongst us, if we are a body, you know, if you stump your toe, your hand doesn't say, who cares, let's cut it off, right? No, it becomes, it comes and tries to... Hold it and, and make sure it's okay because when one part of your body hurts, the whole body hurts. That's what the church should be like. And so if one falls into sin, one goes into error, oh, we shouldn't be the one who, who despise, get out of here. No, we are the ones who say, we gather and we try to seek after them and restore them and bring healing and restoration to what is broken. And Jesus now gets practical here in how we do that. That's what Matthew 18 is all about. And so here's what I, I, I want to quote this from Justin Taylor. I like how he summarizes what the church should be. He says, the church should be a safe place for sinners without being a safe place for sin. The church should be a safe place for sinners without being a safe place for sin. That's what this is. And Jesus tells us that this is done by practicing reconciliation and forgiveness. 
And brothers and sisters, in a time like this, we always need this. This is why the Lord has given us this scripture. But I think there's a particular season, a spirit of, of deception and evil that is, that is encroaching upon not only this world, but even among the people of God. And we need to be equipped and armed how to deal with sin in our midst, how to deal with conflict in our midst, so that we do not devour one another. Because that would be Satan's will. Therefore, whenever a brother or sister falls into sin, what are we to do? Have you ever wondered that? You, you hear or you see of, of one of your brothers and sisters here who has fallen into sin, or, or maybe it's really personal, they sin against you? Do you know what to do? Well, Jesus helps us. He doesn't tell us to gossip. He doesn't tell us to take sides. I'm with her, I'm with him. He doesn't tell us to complain or fine, I'm just finding a new church, starting over. That's not what he tells you to do. No, Jesus tells us we are to strive to restore them back to him and back to his church. And so this is where we're going to start off. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus says, restore the one who has fallen into sin. Restore the one who has fallen into sin. And what I want you to see is that, that this, is, this is our responsibility, okay? This is our responsibilities as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's look in verse 15. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, he, he couches this in a, a very personal conflict, but, but we know elsewhere as the scripture applies this passage, that, if anyone falls into any transgression or sin, James says, if any of you uh, sees your brother fall away into sin, you who are spiritual, you who are mature, go after them, seek them, and restore them. But Jesus says, if, if they fall into sin, go and tell him his fault. Go and tell him his fault. Brothers and sisters, you and I are our brother's keeper. We're not like Cain, who says, am I my brother's keeper? I don't have to keep up with him. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You are your brother's keeper. And as our brother's keepers, we're, we're going to have to rescue each other at times. We'll rescue each other when we fall into sin. And get this, this is the hard part, be willing to confront them. This is exactly what Jesus says. If your brother or you could say sister, he's using family terms here. If, you, if your brother sins against you, what? Go and tell him his fault. Sin's never isolated, you know. Sometimes we're deceived into thinking that my sin's my sin. It only affects me, myself, and I. No, it always affects someone else. Always. That bitterness that creeps in your heart begins to affect your other relationships. If one abandons the faith and, 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 and goes away of the world, we're hurt. We felt abandoned ourselves. We don't see it as just isolated. It's a rejection of us, right? And Jesus says that we are to go after that person. Whatever sin it might be, and tell them their fault. Unfortunately, in the church, I think this responsibility 
really of a rebuke. This is what Jesus is talking about. That's the word rebuke. Tell him his fault is rebuke him. Unfortunately, this has been viewed as the unforgivable sin, I think, sometimes in the church. That's the one thing you can never do, right? You can never confront somebody over their sin or you are the worst person on the face of the planet. I think this is likely to do because, unfortunately, the church in the past has been overly harsh, I think. Maybe you've grown up in some of those circles, and when we think about those hellfire and brimstone preachers who are yelling, and they're screaming at you and telling you you're the worst ever, and you're going to hell constantly. I remember when I was at the University of Kentucky, there was a free speech area, and these type of preachers were often there. And, and they didn't know who you were, and they would just make judgment calls based on the t-shirts you were wearing, okay? Like they would, like if you had like a Metallica shirt on, they would just say, you listen to devil music, you're going to hell. Uh, someone smoking a cigarette, you know, that's not the only death you're going to experience, you know, and it'd just be like over the top. That was driving people away. You can't just make judgment calls on people by their external um, appearance. And I think now, unfortunately, the church has overreacted to those abuses. There's an allergic reaction. Don't ever tell me I'm in the wrong. Now it's abuse if you do. You're an abuser. You're, You're a spiritual oppressor. And we find ways to get ourselves out of it. And yet, this is the word Jesus uses. What what is that? Tell him your fault. That that word right there, it it means to disapprove of someone's action and correct them. It's to bring sin to light. Paul says we we are to expose the works of darkness. And brothers and sisters, when this happens, it hurts. It hurts. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, though. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I think we think friends never wound us. They do. Listen to how David says this. This is remarkable. Psalm 141. Listen to how David speaks of friends who wound him. He says, let a righteous man strike me. It is his kindness. What? What? Sometimes we even say that. They needed a a kick in the pants, right? That's what we usually say it. Or maybe guys would say, they needed to be punched in the face. And we don't mean it like in a sense of like, I hate you. It's that you're out of line. Get back in gear. David's saying the same thing. A punch in the face from one of my friends, if he's a righteous man, it is kindness. Would you view it that way? Hey, let's not put that one maybe into practice, okay? (laughs) He goes on, he says, let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Is that kind of mindset involved in how you think of those who maybe come and would come to you and speak to you about sin in your life? I needed a punch in the face. The righteous does not despise the discipline of the Lord. Only fools despise wisdom. 
And while rebukes, they're, they're sharp, aren't they? They're pointed at times. They can hurt. What I want you to see, though, their aim, their goal is to restore, not to send away. We, we need to find some balance between verse 10 and verse 15. Verse 10, do not despise one of these little ones, but go and tell him his fault. Rebuke him. There is somewhere in the middle, and I think we, we like to, verse 10, yeah, don't ever talk to me about my sin. Don't ever give me a kick in the pants. But we also don't want to be like those free speech preachers I was talking about. You got to be somewhere here. You got to hold these things in balance. And, and I think the goal helps us do that. Because the goal here is that, look at what he says, that we gain your brother at the end of verse 15. That you, that's that wor word to win. Paul uses it when he says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might win some. Our mindset when we are dealing with one another's sins is that I want to win you. I don't want to send you away. I'm coming to rescue you. What, what a beautiful picture, right? I want to gain my brother and sister back. I want to win them. And sometimes we do, we got to shock them to awaken to see their sin and their need of repentance. And we warn them. Well, how do we do this? Well, Jesus gives us really four practical steps. He's very practical here. How do we restore our brother and sister? And these principles, they are, they're in essence principle. We have to use these. It kind of gives us guardrails, if you will. Here's, here are kind of the steps you need to be working through as you're dealing with sin in the midst of the church. And we're going to have to use wisdom. We're going to have to be prudent. In fact, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to, to find some way to work in the Proverbs into your daily, weekly Bible reading rhythms. Because the Proverbs are so filled with wisdom and how to deal with things in different situations. But he gives us these four guidelines, which are to be applied. And he says, first of all, you're to go to him or her in private. And you're to deliver this rebuke in some form. And even that's going to take wisdom. Sometimes you, you need to be harsher. Sometimes you need to be gentler. It's going to depend on the situation, right? You have to exercise prudence. It's not just having a hammer and you go at everything the same way. No. You need more tools in your toolkit. Proverbs, I think, will help you equip yourself there. And he goes, he says, if you go and, and you deliver this, you tell them their fault, you, you correct them from the error, he says, if they listen to you, guess what? You've won them. You've won them. Some of you have, have called me up before, and you've um, maybe told me my fault. Maybe there's been something, usually it's something I've said in a sermon, <laughs> Um, maybe it's something I've, a decision made or, um, yeah, there, there's just times I've, yeah, I, I've sinned or I, I've not handled something correctly. And, and I'll tell you, those, those phone calls aren't fun. I don't enjoy them. However, it keeps the relationship, doesn't it? 
Because if you don't do that, guess what? You start getting bitter. You start building walls. And distance begins to happen. And everyone can see it. You can cut through that tension with a knife. It's actually the means of loving them, isn't it? Because you, want, you don't want the relationship to break. And some of you have loved me well enough to do that. And sometimes we have disagreements and we can work through it and say, oh, I didn't know that's what you meant. Oh, you know what? I should have been more sensitive to that. But when both parties want to gain the relationship, you know what? Love covers multitudes of sin. It really does. It's only when you don't want to gain that you can't work through it. And so Jesus says, usually, and I think this is what usually happens, you know, this step one's really, it doesn't really move beyond that often. Usually you can win one another. And if, you, if they listen, you've gained your brother. But if they don't listen, they persist in their sin, he gives us another principle, another step. He says, you're to bring one or two others with you. You see that in verse 16? Bring one or two others with you. Now, who are these other people? Somebody you just pick up off the street? Meet somebody at the gas station? Hey, I, I got some confronting to do. Would you be interested? No, this isn't a hit job, okay? Well, these are fellow members in the church, fellow members in the body, right? You begin to share the burden. Hey, this is what has happened. Not gossip. Not, hey, can I get you to be on my side so we can go get them? That's not what you do. No, hey, there's a conflict. We have not been able to resolve it. I think this brother or sister is in sin. Here's what they've done to me. Or I've just, I've noticed this pattern in their life. Or all sorts of things. This is genuine sin Jesus is talking about. I want you to come with me. And, And what's their purpose then? Well, their purpose, Jesus tells us. He says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Their presence is to help discern the severity of the sin. Their their presence is there. Is sin involved at all? And if need be, if there is sin, they can join in the rebuke and the appeal to repentance to gain this brother or sister. Jesus is quoting here a principle from the law that every charge has to be substantiated. It must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why? Why is this? Because God in his wisdom protects us from frivolous accusations. The reality is there's going to be some of us just don't get along, right? There's something, there's people, you know who they are, and guess what? They probably think the same way of you, and they're just like, I struggle around you. And someone could take this passage and say, all right, I'm going to start tomorrow or right after the service. Hey, we need to have a little private conversation. And they become the sin police. Previous church I was in, it's a woman who'd taken this text and made it her life averse, okay? (laughs) And, And you know what? The truth is she was right on all these situations, but one of the times we were, but they were always just so petty, <laughs> just petty. Yeah, I guess they shouldn't have said that. They shouldn't have done that. But here's the common denominator. You know what? You are the common denominator. 
You're a troublemaker. You're not trying to restore or gain. You're trying to be a tattletale. That's what was going on. And so God has built in, within the people of God, some sort of accountability to stop some of us from being like that. Okay? There's two or three witnesses. This protects you. And so perhaps uh, you think the person has fallen into deep sin. You're, you're really concerned. You think they've wronged you. But when the, the, the one or two others come with you, they, they hear the situation, they're like, is this true? And you're like, yeah. Yeah, I don't think you need to be that upset about it. Are you sorry? Yeah, okay, but you need to let it go. But the flip side could be true. You go and you approach somebody and you say, hey, you have sinned against me. You've grown great harm. I said, no, I haven't. And they dig in their heels. They continue to go in their path. And you bring these one or two others with you and they hear it and they say, yeah, brother, you might not see it, but, but you did. This is a grave error and you need to repent. And the Lord uses that to say, okay, maybe I just thought it was a personal thing, but no, it was personal, but it's real. There was sin in my life. And that's how the Lord begins to use that. And he says, again, he doesn't repeat it, but assuming you, they listen to the three, you gain them, right? That's the goal. You gain your friend back. You gain the body back, the brother or sister back. But if they're still persistent, Jesus gives us a third step. And I think there's some wisdom here. Not, even at this point, there, these two or three witnesses could say, yeah, you guys got to work this out between yourselves. This isn't something to keep pursuing. I mean, there's lots of wisdom. Jesus doesn't handle every situation, but it gives us kind of a grid to work through. And sometimes it's, no, you are in grave sin. And you need to listen. And if they don't listen, Jesus says, then tell it to the church. Again, Jesus is helping us connect the dots. He doesn't keep repeating himself. The goal is still to gain. And even though now the circle has gotten bigger, the purpose is still the same. Now it's to adjudicate the, the little group, if you will. Because we all know someone can get really uh, maybe sneaky with this, and they know the right people to choose as their two or three witnesses, right? These people will believe me. And you could handle the situation wrong. Now the church hears and adjudicates. Are these charges warranted? If you were at the business meeting, you know, we've seen this several times, not often, but it happens. There are times we bring issues up to the church. And here's something I want to press upon you. It is your responsibility to adjudicate. I think most of the time we're like, I don't want anything to do with that. Jesus says, your responsibility. Now, you might not have the details, and when the pastors usually bring these things up, there should be some sense of, okay, how's this gone through? What are, we, what are we doing here? How do we win them? We should strategize. How do we get this brother back? How do we get this sister back? Who knows them? Who thinks they can maybe have a better in and, and, and wouldn't go to them and they would take it as personally? Who would be a good advocate? Now the church goes after them. Not to despise, verse 10, but to gain. And again, if they listen to the church, wow, you've won your brother or sister. 
But if not, Jesus says, fourthly, let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. What does Jesus mean by this pejorative term? Well, a Gentile is a pagan. It's an unbeliever. Paul says they have no hope and are without God in the world. And a tax collector in the Jewish mind was right there with them. You might not be ethnically a Gentile, but you're spiritually a Gentile. That's, that's what those terms were. In other words, Jesus says, if it goes all the way through and they will not listen to the church's appeal to repent of their sin, you're to treat them as if they're an unbeliever. Now, how do we treat unbelievers? We kick them out the door, say, don't you ever come back here anymore. I don't want to see your face. No. We try to win them, right? They're evangelistic prospects now. We're praying for their soul to be converted. The goal is to restore. Now, some of you might be thinking, who gives you the authority to do that? What kind of authority? Where, where, who, who made you judge over people? Well, Jesus tells us that it's actually on his authority that we are to do this. And restore a sinning brother and sister who's wandered away. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. It's our authority. He says, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus says truly, that means this is the important point you need to understand. This is why I'm telling you to do this. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What in the world is he talking about? Well, if you were with us and you remember Matthew 16, Jesus said something very similar to Peter, didn't he? Matthew 16, verse 19, this is what Jesus says to Peter. Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What a picture. What do keys do? They lock doors. They open up gates, right? He says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It helps us maybe understand what he's talking about. This binding and loosing language is speaking about the authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom. a sense of who gets in and who gets out, who's out. And we do this all the time. Usually it's positive, right? Praise God. In our last business meeting, we brought in, I think, 20 new members. Brought in 20 new people. We, we baptized one. And we, we pray that we'll continue to do that. What are we doing? We are, we are bringing you into the ark and saying you're part of the family. When we baptize, what are we doing? We're saying that we believe that you are a Christian and you are confessing to us you're a Christian and we say, buried with Christ and risen to newness of life. Your sins have been cleansed. Welcome to the family. It's a declaration. You've, you're in the kingdom. But on the flip side, sometimes we have to remove people and that's what Jesus is getting at. Sometimes... Someone's baptized, someone joins the church, and, and they're a goat. They look like a sheep, but they're a goat. And it becomes evident as sin begins to come out of their life. And it always is shocking. Always is. 
And they go through this process. Jesus says, you go through this process. Me guiding you. And under my authority, you then put them out. And what are we saying? We're saying, I can no longer affirm that we believe you're a Christian. We pray that that changes. But you should have no assurance of the salvation of your soul. That's what the binding is. You're, they're, you're leaving them bound in their sins. We don't bind them. We, we're more pronouncing. And notice that, that what's going on here is, is very um, profound, if you will. This is heaven's verdict expressed through the church. We often say this through positive things. The church gathers, the Holy Spirit moves us together so that we may know who to call as a pastor or our decision to be made or adopt a budget. We, we talk about those things, but it's on the, also on the flip side how we deal with sin. The Spirit is working in us, and we should never do this in the flesh. We should never be hasty in it. Notice that Jesus says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree, he kind of goes back to that step two. If two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, ask, ask in prayer. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. It will be done for them. This is that relationship. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What is you bind will be bound in heaven. Jesus is saying, I exercise my rule when you obey my word and you depend on me and you and I am in your midst. Does this mean the church is infallible? No, we all know that. That's why Jesus gives us guidelines, protection, checks and balances. If you go to 1 Timothy 5, there's even rules for, the, for guys like me, the pastor. How, how do you confront sin? And when do you admit a charge? On the basis of two or three witnesses. There's checks and balances that he has put in place that if the Spirit of God is upon us, our light lampstand is not there. We seek him by faith in prayer. He says, he'll give us the wisdom that we ask for. Because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I'm there among them trying to gain. He is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And he does it through us. It's pretty humbling, isn't it? That God would see fit to rescue us through us. I hope you see this is why you need to be in a faithful Bible preaching church. Why you need to be in a faithful, Jesus-confessing, humbly obeying church. How many churches would never dare to preach this, let alone do it? They're not being humble. They're not being gracious. They're being rebels. And Jesus has given us a task. He's given us keys. And I think on that day, there will be many pastors, many churches who are like the one who buried the talent. Yes, you gave me this responsibility, but I didn't make use of it. church is God's means of keeping you. It is. It's God's means of keeping you in the faith, discipling you, disciplining you, correcting you, and restoring you when you fall. This is what we say when we're committed 
when we join the church, some of you are going to Discovering Oak Park later. We're going to talk about this. Jeremy, I think, is going to be handling this. You can probably skip the discipline section. Uh, we did this, okay? You got a full explanation. But those of you who have joined the church, you're thinking about joining, this is what you're signing up for. This is the type of commitment of a family, a covenant. And I want you to read here. I've got up on the screen elements of our church covenant, our commitment that, that if you've come into this church, you, you said, I agree to, I'm going to do. This is rooted in these texts. And if you are kind of the old era who didn't go through Discovering Oak Park and all that, we renew this every time at the business meeting, don't we? When we bring in new members. Look here. Listen to what we commit to in terms of our brotherly accountability. We will walk together. I think we got this on the screen. Sean? We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up those members, as may at any time be under our care, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. There's positive and there's negative. As occasion may acquire, we are going to watch out for one another. And so it's in this way, brothers and sisters, that the church is to be a safe place for sinners without being a safe place for sin. It's in this way. So that a little leaven doesn't leaven the whole lump. This is what you and I signed up for when you professed Christ and joined this church. Here's what you're saying. If I'm in sin, go get me. Because I will go get you. That's what we're saying. If you're in sin, I will go get you. And if I'm in sin, you'll go get me. We're committed to that. And if that's not what you're committed to, I'd say don't leave the ark. Don't leave the ark. There's only floods out there. And we want you here. We want our brothers and sisters. Well, as you can tell, we're not going to get to the whole passage, right? I learned this about 12 o'clock last night. So this is going to be a two-parter. I think this is fitting, though, to go into Lord's Supper, though. There's going to be great rejoicing if one of us repents of sin, right? But we know sin causes trouble, doesn't it? It brings great harm, hurt. Sometimes there's mistrust. For this reason, we must learn to know how to forgive, right? That's where we're going to come up next time. Okay, let's say we won them, but the damage is done. How do we forgive them? Well, we forgive them just as God in Christ forgave us, right? And that's where we come to the Lord's table. Lord's Supper is an act, actually, of exercising the keys of the kingdom. I don't have time to go into it, maybe some other time. 
the ordinances. Baptism brings you in. It's the gate. Lord's table is the family meal. It's a reminder that by faith, Christ has died for our sins and brought us to the meal, to the family table. We're welcome at the table. We're the dogs, you remember, who are welcomed at the table. And it's an assurance that we're part of the kingdom of Christ. And this is why we fence the table. And so if you're here today and and you haven't repented of your sins or trusted Christ for salvation and, and, and publicly made that declaration through the waters of baptism, you can't come to the table yet. In a sense, we can't unlock that door. Jesus won't let us. You have to come in through the gates. And that gate is profession of faith in Christ, repentance of your sin, and come through the waters out on the other side. And we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to bring you into the ark. There's a great meal prepared. Christ's death, his body and his blood for sinners like you and me. And we get to come and confess our sins all anew, renew our faith, renew our commitment, say thank you, Jesus, that you have forgiven me. And so when we sit around the table, we look at each other in the eyes and say, how can I hold anything against you? We'll talk about that next Sunday, right? All right, well, at this time, why don't we stand and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together, which is the common confession that we have. At least a summary that unites us in sense of our profession of faith that's handed down to all the saints. And I invite you to repeat with me as the words are on the screen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy and universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we sing, uh, those of you in the middle rows, you'll come to the middle table. Just everybody go to your right and keep going to your right. Grab the elements and go back to your seat, and we'll take them together.